Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org slash match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. The Gulf of Mexico is the lifeblood of Florida's West Coast. Beaches, fishing, shipping, cruises. The Biden administration has promised a new focus on confronting climate change and protecting the environment. So what does that mean for the Gulf? Our first guest calls it the hardest working body of water in the world. And it's one that's constantly under threat from red tide, overfishing, pollution, hurricanes and oil spills. Monty Graham is the new director of the Florida Institute of Oceanography, based at the University of South Florida's St. Petersburg campus. While he's new to Florida, he's no stranger to the Gulf. He spent his career working on Gulf issues in Alabama and Mississippi. I'll start off. I mean, your your experience, you know, dealing with the Gulf has been primarily in in uh, in Mississippi and Alabama, and uh, when you think about that that part of the region specifically. Uh, what comes to mind is some of the some of the ecological disasters that have been uh, that have happened over the last uh, two decades or so. Of course, Hurricane Katrina and then the the uh, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. I wonder how the response to those disasters and what we've learned from them maybe can be applicable to some of the some of the problems uh, in this part of the Gulf here in Florida. Right. So. Um... It's a, it's it's a interesting thing to be looking at um, uh, you know what you call disasters and you know disasters can come in in a variety of forms. You mentioned two of them are very acute uh, disasters that that are you know, all of a sudden insults to the system, and then you have long periods of recovery. But then there are other uh, you know you might might not think of them as, as so acute. Um, but you know there are long long term kind of chronic impacts, and certainly uh, a, a warming uh, system from from climate change, and and, uh, and then also you have on top of that you know acidification problems, and so these are these are disasters as well, and we have to, to treat them as such, and uh, uh, they they are Gulf wide issues. So I would I would argue that you know we we learned a lot from primarily from Deepwater Horizon in the sense that uh, we, we understand more how the, the ecosystem, especially offshore and deep waters of the Gulf of Mexico, are um, able to respond to these, these kind of insults over the long term. So you can have that, that perturbation and then a long sort of view at how things recover. And so from that you get, well, how, how resilient are the systems? In the Gulf of Mexico, both the coastal and the offshore deep water, and um, you know, we learned that that from the deep water horizon that they are pretty resilient. Um, and so, I think when we face things like like warming systems and you know around climate change and ocean acidification, yeah, you know, we have to do it in that context that we have a a pretty resilient system already. When you say ocean acidification, that's interesting to me because it's salt water and and uh... Generally, it's hard to, to to have an acidic environment in, in salt water. But how does that happen, and how does climate change uh, contribute to it? So um, the you have to think of of 
climate change due to CO2 increases, and then you're increasing the ability for the oceans to take up carbon dioxide and, and in the water. And when you do that, you change the, uh, the, the carbonate chemistry of the, of the water. And the, the, you know, the short end product of that is you get subtle decreases in pH. And so you have to, you know, just like you said, the ocean is, uh, it's, it's really buffered, you know, so it, it, it's very difficult to get it to change its pH. And so the organisms, especially the, you know, the, the, the tiny shell organisms that make their, their shells out of calcium carbonate, coral reefs, you know, another, another example, when you start changing subtly the, the pH, um, it, it changes the entire biology of, of the organism. And, you know, you know, small changes in the ability to produce those shells can have enormous consequences for the population. So just even a slight change in the pH mm -hmm. can make a dramatic, have a dramatic impact on, uh, on life in the, in the ocean then. Absolutely. And, it, and, and, you know, you would see impacts from, you know, large calcareous things, you know, coral, uh, coral reefs, but also you have to think about um, oysters, you know, and, and oysters, but also the, the smaller microscopic uh, larval stages that really are the ones that are going to be susceptible to, to those changes. So, it, you know, the, the impacts of, of ocean acidification will be pretty profound. So uh, there are a number of issues of, around uh, around the environment in the Gulf uh, in this region of Florida that get a, get a lot of attention, uh, particularly red tide, algae blooms and the like. Is there any issues that people aren't uh, paying attention to, to you, that you think they should? Well, the, the ones that, you know, say it this way, um, we don't know what we don't know at, about these systems. So we do know the big ones, you know, the, the red tides. We know a lot about uh, fishing pressures. Uh, we know a lot about, uh, you know, the impacts of climate change that are going to happen with, um, with corals and heating and bleaching. So we know those big obvious ones. But the ones that we don't know yet, uh, I, I would I would argue that that the, the public should think of the ocean and our ability to understand and predict the ocean is just like our ability to understand and predict weather on land. And the only reason why we are, have the ability to predict two weeks in advance, you know, a cold blast that's going to come through and drop snow in Houston and you know and and you know, give us a little bit of a, a zing as well, is because we have we have land uh, so incredibly uh, instrumented right now, uh, we, and we don't have that in the ocean. So, you know, we're we're probably at a hundred times fewer instruments observing what the ocean can do. So that really limits our ability to predict the ocean, and, and uh, especially in the Gulf of Mexico. And, and I would point to the big driver for the Gulf of Mexico is this, this warm water current that comes out of the Caribbean, extends up into the northern Gulf um, on occasion, breaks off these large eddies, and, and, uh, and then exits back out through the Florida Straits and becomes the Gulf Stream. So that's the, um, the loop current. And we still don't know what drives the loop current to do what it does. And even though it is the biggest driver of the Gulf of Mexico in terms of uh, big parcels of water that can influence the productivity or, or movement of uh, microscopic organisms or, you know, hurricane intensity. We, we just don't, we don't know. 
And, uh, and so I would argue that the, the big ones that, that people need to appreciate and hopefully support is um, our desire to have a very ramped up uh, ocean instrumentation program. It's called Ocean Observing. So is there is there any kind of effort to, to, to do that right now? There, there is. Um, there's there are constant um, uh, pushes to to have more instrumentation in the in the ocean. Uh, you know, you often hear people talk about more data is better, and it's and it really is true. So, you know, the uh, um, the big push right now out of both the Biden administration and here in Florida with um, Governor DeSantis is to start looking at infrastructure, especially infrastructure that is, you know, has some relevance to climate resilience and. You know, we would we as scientists would argue that we, we need to have some of that infrastructure um, improve our our knowledge base of, of the Gulf and improve our predictive predictive capacity I know uh, I, I was looking at some of the some of the work you did in Mississippi and uh, I noticed that you talked a lot about uh, sort of tying you know preservation work resilience in the Gulf to uh, to economic benefits, how do you kind of balance those those two? Because there's a lot of different pressures on on the Gulf with recreation, with uh, shipping, fishing, etc. You know, it's not that hard. You know, because e even with the um, sort of the in industry, you know, there, you know, we would all argue that that there is no harder working body of water than the Gulf of Mexico. Um, you know, in terms of fisheries, you know, oil and gas production in the northern and, and western Gulf, you know, red tide, you know, population increases uh, along the margin. So it's a it's a really hard working body of, of water. And there's no reason why you can't have a, a good balance between um, resilience and the economic contribution that the ocean, that the Gulf of Mexico makes. And, uh, and in fact, I would argue that you, you, you have to have both. You know, if you if you lose the ability for the Gulf to be resilient, you know, you're going to lose your ability to to sustain an economic, you know, thriving economic um, environment for all those things that, that I had mentioned already. And in Florida, you know, for instance, you know, tourism is tourism is king, and our ability to understand and you know, know what the what the Gulf pressures are from increasing use of the Gulf of Mexico, either at local scales or at the whole Gulf scale. You know, if we don't have the ability to, to understand that, then we're going to have a hard time uh, supporting the economy in the, in the future. So you, you've got to have both. I mean, it's, it's, it's both at the same time. What are some of the, the projects that are going on here in Florida or maybe in, in other states with regards to, to um, protecting and building out the resilience of the Gulf? Well, one, you have to, again, you have to understand the Gulf. And so at its core, you have to have a proper ocean observing system. And that's, that's throughout the, the Florida coastal waters. You know, it's the, the right number of buoys, the right number, you know, that are, that are sending back on ocean data, on currents, on temperature, on productivity, you know, identifying, you know, when you've got harmful algal bloom species. Um, so just just having a, a bigger window uh, is is the big one that, that I think folks are on. Um, others, you know, are you know you know especially the ones that we're pretty heavily involved with. You know, down in the Keys, uh, coral restoration um, is a is a big deal. Um, 
you know, it's, it's not just a big deal for, um, you know, the, the, the marine sanctuary, but, you know, and the aesthetic value to people for their, for their enjoyment, but it's also the amount of diversity that is sustained by coral reefs is, is huge. And so if we start losing, um, you know, the habitat, then you're going to start losing all the other things that come along with it. And, uh, and so that's a, that's a big one. Um, you know, fisheries, you know, fisheries management, that's, that's always a, a struggle. We could go on for a, for an hour on, on fisheries management issues, um, you know, because that ties back into, you know, the federal level, the state level and, and sort of local economies, uh, that are, that are based on, on fishing. Um, huge, uh, other areas uh, that are that are kind of interesting is you know so our you know, our oceans uh, our our nations uh, all have access for their own use of resources out to 200 miles and so we have these really large what we call exclusive economic zones um, that are that are attached to each each nation but we really only get jurisdiction uh, out to 12 miles and then everything out beyond that, you know, is, you know, you can have free passage of, of shipping and, and so on. But if you think about that 200 miles, we know very little about what we actually own as a, as a nation. And so there is a, a major effort in the country that is also going on here in Florida because we have such a large coastline, it's very important to us, is to you know, fully map and and explore and characterize not just not just creating maps and not just going down and looking but but also coming up um, using new novel technologies to um, to fully characterize the ocean uh, more and the ocean's uh, interior as well you know you think about you know what happened back in the early 1800s with the Louisiana purchase well you know Lewis and Clark went off um, to um, um, go explore what the country had just purchased from France, and they came back with all of these you know, discoveries. And so that's that's really where we are with this is is just exploring and and, and learning what we we actually own. You mentioned nations, and I wonder how much of a coordinated effort is there between the U.S., uh, Mexico, the Central American countries that touch the Gulf in terms of 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 dealing with some of these issues. Quite a lot, quite a lot, and it ebbs and flows with um, with administrations, right? But um, you know, there's very tight coordination between um, Mexico and, and other other Caribbean states that are uh, they're sort of either touching or directly influenced by the Gulf of Mexico. You know, Cuba is, is definitely a, a an area that that ebbs and flows depending on the administration and the ability. But you know, the scientists will always argue that. Um, you know, we can't have a complete understanding of the whole thing until everybody that has a, a stake in it uh, is actually at the table and working together. So there's a, you know, a strong desire to have openness uh, on a scientific level. And I think science is always going to be a, a, a really useful tool to build relationships across nations because they, they're really driven by the same, the same search for um, um, uh, truth and, and, and um, an understanding of the environment. So. so what do you understand about uh, the Biden administration's priorities for, for the Gulf over the next uh, four years? Well, that what they will do is, is, you know, set priorities at the high level for, for the entire nation. 
Um, there probably will be a few areas that are actually, you know, predated the, the Trump administration, carried through the Trump administration, and then and then will continue on. And then there are some um, initiative strategies that were started under the Trump administration, with um, uh, especially with with NOAA, that quite a quite a few of us have found really pretty, you know, haven't had enough time to be successful, but they're good strategies. And so there are a few that we would we would argue to have uh, continue on. Big pushes in, in ocean observing and the development of new, uh, what we call uncrewed technologies. Um, big thing right now is data. Um, you know, with, with more observations, more mapping, there's more data. And so now we have to use uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, to help us understand the data and define patterns um, uh, where we can. Uh, this other area that is called OMIT. So it's just generally, you can think of it as, you know, things related to the, the, the genetic makeup of, of organisms, organisms or their ability to produce um, chemicals. Uh, and so this, this whole field of, of being able to go out and sense the ocean for life without actually having to catch something where you can go out with the sensor and just tell if it's there, maybe how much of it is there, uh, what its seasonality is. Those are those are incredibly important tools that we want to see uh, continue on uh, you know, in, in, the, in the Biden administration. Um, certainly the Biden administration is, is going to focus very heavily on climate, climate uh, resilience. Uh, that is clearly something that is, that is at the core of, of uh, Florida's interests as well. And, uh, and so I, I think the, the governor in Florida is you know, his plan for a billion-dollar investment uh, in Florida, when climate resilience uh, is is right lockstep with probably what we're going to see at the federal level, and and the ability to leverage one against the other is puts Florida in a really good position. All right, Money. I think that's it for my questions. Anything else you'd like to say? Um, I'm happy to be here. We we just love the the, the place. We love St. Pete, and and uh, the the Florida Institute of Oceanography is. Is you know we'd like to you know let you let, let everybody know that you know FIO is is really all the state universities plus right. plus private sector and so we are here to serve the entire state and uh, and we we are truly enjoying um, joining this this great team here. Well, uh, thank you for your time today, Monty. Uh, welcome to Florida, and I'm sure we'll be uh, chatting again at some point uh, down the road. Absolutely, thank you, Brad. All right, thank you. Take care. Monty Graham is director of the Florida Institute of Oceanography at USF St. Petersburg. You're listening to Florida Matters. Our program continues in just a moment. This is Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. Today we're talking about the state of the Gulf of Mexico. My colleague Jessica Mazaros covers the Gulf in her role as an environment and climate change reporter. And I recently chatted with her about her take on the major issues facing Gulf Coast communities. So, Jessica, what are some of the major environmental issues that are uh, facing the Gulf right now? Well, Bradley, um, we have the dead zone, which is an area of little to no oxygen that can kill marine life. And the size of that fluctuates every year. We also have, of course, toxic red tide blooms, which can cause fish kills and respiratory issues for people. They also tend to slow down the economy along the coast when blooms are strong and persistent. Um, 
There's also the issue of nutrients flowing into the Gulf. That's from Lake Okeechobee, Mississippi River watershed and agricultural lands. Also, there are Saharan sands that are blowing, um, adding to the Gulf's nutrient intake. And nutrients are a concern because they can exacerbate things like algae blooms and the dead zone. And then there's, of course, offshore oil and gas drilling in the Gulf. Yeah, and it's interesting what you say about um, about the um, the nutrients because we talked to the new director of the Florida Institute of Oceanography, and he said, you know, just like tiny, tiny little changes in you know the pH balance of the water or the water temperature can have a huge impact on the ecosystem. So I can imagine things like phosphates or sand or whatever it is um, that that gets into the Gulf that can that can have an even bigger impact. Yeah, and it's not, you know, some people have a misunderstanding that nutrients cause red tide blooms or, or the, um, the, the dead zone. It's more like it exacerbates, you know, it, it, it's like food for a red tide bloom um, is, is how it's been explained to me. So uh, we heard a lot about the, the dead zone. How, how big is it? How much of a, of, a, of a problem is it right now? Well, annually, scientists are checking out the dead zone and they release a projection first, then they actually go out and physically measure it. The forecast for 2020 was originally expected to be larger than average. That was at 6,700 square miles um, because large amounts of freshwater nutrients had been flowing into the Gulf from the Mississippi River watershed. And just for context, the five-year running average is now about 5,400 square miles. But due to Hurricane Hannah sweeping through, the storm reintroduced oxygen into that area and actually ended up measuring out to be the small, the third, excuse me, the third smallest dead zone on record. Um, There's actually a task force made up of federal and state agencies along with tribes, uh, which has a goal to decrease the dead zone to about 1900 square miles. Well, that's interesting that a, a, a hurricane had a had a beneficial effect then for the for the Gulf. Yeah, it tends to kind of come in and stir everything up and reintroduce that oxygen and and just shake everything up. So it, it does kind of mess up the science because it, it's a temporary fix. It's not really um, indicative of what's really going on. It's just shaking things up. And so scientists were a little bit annoyed by that because it doesn't give they actually took the time to go out there and they didn't have an accurate reading of what the dead zone was for this year because of the hurricane. Uh, red tide, we know, can be a serious issue. It was a couple of years ago when when beaches uh, here in the Tampa Bay region had to shut down. Um, what's the situation with red tide been like uh, more recently? Well, just as of Friday, February 12th, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission reported that the red tide organism Perennia brevis was observed in Sarasota, Charlotte, Lee, Collier, and Monroe counties. None have high levels yet. It's either background, low, or medium concentrations. But samples from Pinellas, Hillsborough, and Manatee counties did not contain any Karenia brevis. Um, no fish kills were reported, but respiratory irritation was reported in Lee County. So that's where we're at right now. So um, we have a new administration coming in that'll have its own uh, environmental policies. But the Trump administration uh, enacted some new uh, protections for deep sea corals in the Gulf. What exactly uh, do those do? Yeah. So um, if you don't mind, I'll talk a little bit about what deep sea corals are first. Sure. They are, um, they're different than the normal coral that we're used to in shallow waters. You know, the, the ones we're used to when we go maybe snorkeling, they're, they're in shallow waters, they're exposed to sunlight. These are totally different. They're in discrete clusters 
in the deep sea um, where little sunlight comes through. And they're really important because they create a lot of habitat for animals like crabs, fish, and sharks. Um, but these are a slow growing and fragile species and they were getting damaged by deep water fishing nets and it can take years for them to recover. So back in October, the US Department of Commerce Secretary officially decided to protect these deep sea Gulf corals from fishing gear and basically boundaries were set so that fishing happens around the corals and not on top of them. In addition to that, federal officials will monitor fishing boats through tracking devices to make sure that they're not destroying the corals. What sort of other Trump administration uh, policies uh, came into force with regards to the Gulf? Well, let's start with a moratorium that began in 2006. Congress established a moratorium on oil and gas exploration in federal Gulf waters, and it was supposed to expire in June of 2022. But this past September, then-President Donald Trump signed an executive order to extend the moratorium until 2032, so over 10 more years. Plus, he tacked on the Atlantic coasts of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. And so this announcement came two months before the November presidential election. But before then, Trump had actually wanted to expand offshore drilling for most of his term. And uh, the Biden administration, though, has made it clear that they're, they're not in favor of, uh, of offshore drilling or drilling on federal land. So we can expect more actions to stop that, right? Yeah, actually, late last month, President Biden signed an executive order to keep that pause on issuing new oil and gas leases in federal lands and waters until a review of the current leasing and permitting program is completed. So about a quarter of U.S. oil production is done on federal lands and waters. Um, this, this is seen as the first step for Biden to potentially enact a permanent plan, which was promised during his presidential campaign. And of course, activists and some lawmakers are just thrilled at this latest move. You mentioned uh, Lake Okeechobee and the Everglades, um, and the Everglades and Lake Okeechobee also play a role in, in, in the health of the Gulf. And we know that uh, during the Trump administration that he, he, he promised more federal money for Everglades restoration. It was uh, Rick Scott and Marco Rubio and Ron DeSantis who all kind of nudged Trump to, to, to take on that policy. Do we expect those funds for Everglade restoration to continue uh, in the Biden administration? Well, it's not exactly clear just yet, but Everglades advocates are pushing for President Joe Biden to nearly quadruple federal spending on restoring marshes to keep the progress that's been going on track. Um, last month, 61 environmental groups, rep, um, they sent a letter to the president asking him to increase spending to nearly $3 billion over the next four years which breaks down to about $725 million a year. So we'll see um, how Biden responds to that. And uh, I also understand that uh, uh, somebody who's been a, a longtime advocate for, uh, for the Everglades and Florida uh, has a key role in environmental policy in the Biden administration. Is that right? Yeah, the U.S. Department of Interior named an Everglades advocate to a top position last month. Shannon Estenos uh, directed the department's Everglades restoration work under the Obama administration. She had also been chief operating officer for the Everglades Foundation, and she's now going to become the principal deputy assistant secretary overseeing the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Park Service. Well, Jessica, thanks so much. Thank you, Bradley. appreciate it. That was WUSF environment and climate change reporter Jessica Mazaros. By the way, Jessica wants to know how climate change is affecting people in the Tampa Bay region. If you've got a story, you can share it with her at WUSFnews.org. 
And here's a quick update on red tide in our region. Over the past week in southwest Florida, K. brevis was observed at very low to low concentrations in Sarasota County, very low to medium concentrations in Charlotte County, background to medium concentrations in Lee County, and background to low concentrations in an offshore Collier County. Fish kills suspected to be related to red tide were reported over the past week in Charlotte County, and respiratory irritation was reported over the past week in Sarasota, Charlotte, Lee, and Collier counties. That's Florida Matters for this week. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Bradley George. Thank you for listening.